0: Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and please turn to, to Acts chapter 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. And if you were here last week, then you know that we covered chapters 13 and 14. It's commonly known in those two chapters as what? Paul's first missionary journey. And if you were here, you might recall last week that I put some maps up on the screen and kind of showed you the different places that Paul and Barnabas went on this journey, and how the gospel was expanding, and new churches and new territories were, were popping up. And I hope you took some time this week to, to read on your own Acts chapter 13 and 14 and to familiarize yourself with all that happened in those two chapters and what God did through Paul and Barnabas on this amazing multi year journey. Well, at the very end of Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas return. ...to where their journey first started. That was the city of Antioch. The Christians there in Antioch were very special to Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas had spent quite a bit of time with this church. They had invested so much of their self into this church. It was the church in Antioch that had kind of raised them up... ...and commissioned them to go on this multiple year journey to these new areas. It was in Antioch that we saw all of these new Gentiles becoming Christians... And it is where that the word Christian first pops up in the Bible. They were called Christians first in the city of Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas are coming home. And it had to have been a sweet reunion after not seeing any of these people for several years. And the Bible says at the end of chapter 14 that they spent a long time with the church there in Antioch. How long is a long time? I, I really don't know. It doesn't specify. From our estimation... The church is about 20 years old by the time you get to Acts chapter 15. Two decades have passed since the day of Pentecost, so there's been quite a bit of development in the church. They are spending significant time there in Antioch, and it seems at the end of chapter 14 that life is pretty good there in Antioch until Acts chapter 15 verse 1 happens. Let's read it together. Look at verse 1. It says this, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Somebody say, whoa. 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 I mean, this is, this is a change. Here are these guys that are coming from the direction of Jerusalem, and they make their way into Antioch, and they come in there like they are ones with authority, and they start teaching the church this message. You've got to be, you Gentiles, if you want to be a Christian like us, you have to be circumcised. Now, let's just analyze a few things. Who are a certain people? Who who are these guys? Well, um, they are from, like I said, the area of Jerusalem. They would identify themselves as Christians, but they are very legalistic, Jewish, some kind of teachers who had a real problem with all of this Hey, let's let the Gentiles be Christians too conversation. You know, this has been building for a couple chapters. They got a problem with it. These guys more identify with the Pharisees than anything else. They were not authorized. They were not commissioned. They were not blessed by the disciples to speak on their behalf. But they traveled into Antioch all on their own, and they started teaching this message. And these are people that obviously did not like All of these Gentiles becoming Christians in the city of Antioch. They roll in like big dogs. And they're like, unless you men have a surgery, you cannot be a Christian. And all the Christian men in Antioch were like, whoa, 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 hold on. Paul, Barnabas, you didn't tell us this part. And you look at verse 2. This was the result. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So obviously there was a discussion and it did not get resolved in Antioch. It says there was a sharp dispute. I think that's the Bible's kind way of saying it got ugly and words were said that we cannot record for all time in the Bible. I mean, I think that's what is happening here. So we're just going to leave it at this, a sharp dispute. Anybody ever have a sharp dispute with anybody before? Anybody on the way to church have a sharp? No, never mind, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It couldn't get resolved, and so Paul and Barnabas and a few other believers in Antioch, they travel to Jerusalem, which still, even in this day, 20 years into the church, Jerusalem is still kind of home base for all things Christian, and they go there to get this specific question answered. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Now that's the specific question at the moment, but when they get to Jerusalem, this question is going to broaden out. It's a broader conversation in the church that was being had at that time, and the broader conversation was this, how in the world are Jewish people who are following Christ And Gentile people who are following Christ, how in the world are they going to come together in unity and be one church? They're just too different. There's too many prejudices that are in their culture at this time. And those prejudices are well documented throughout the Gospels and throughout the book of Acts. You see, at this time in history, there were many people who felt like Jews and Gentiles should never mix in the church. Or if the Gentiles wanted to become a Christian, and they were really serious about that, then they were going to have to first convert to being a Jew, and then they could follow Christ. And what they mean by convert to being a Jew is that all the men had to get circumcised, they had to eat a certain diet, they had to learn all the rules and follow all the customs, and as long as they were doing that, they could also join the church. There was this mentality in that kind of thinking that uh, became very strategically legalistic towards what it means to follow Christ. And at the heart of this legalism were these people that had spent their whole lives training, being trained up to obey the law of Moses. Their whole lives were wrapped around this idea that the scriptures they knew at the time, the law of Moses, for simplicity's sake, we'll just say the Old Testament, their whole lives were spent obeying all the rules and laws. And they could not see, they could not comprehend how anybody could be a Christian and separate themselves from all of these things that they have grown to know as Jewish people. Simplistically, we're saying to follow Christ from their point of view became an add-on requirement of the already existing law of Moses. And as a result, there were many Jewish people in this, part of, in this time frame of the church that developed a very legalistic mentality of, towards faith that absolutely slammed the door on anybody, any Gentile who was honestly desiring God who was also not willing to first convert to being a Jew. It just slammed the door on that. I, I want you to know something, that obedience to God is a must. Obedience to God's Word, and and all is a must, but personal legalism is very dangerous. Obedience to God is a must. Personal legalism is very dangerous. There is legalism that is creeping into what is happening in the church at this time in Acts 15. And I can tell you, for us here at New Life... There is never a day in our life as a church where we can lower our guard and not pay attention to legalism that is constantly trying to slip its way into our church family. We have to be on guard of any kind of thinking or rhetoric that requires or implies that anyone do more for their salvation than what is simply stated in the message of the good news. And that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 15. These legalists were requiring people to do more to earn their salvation. They were teaching that faith in Jesus plus other things, like circumcision, is what makes you saved. Friends, I want to give you a warning that if you ever hear a preacher or if you ever hear a religious leader or some kind of teacher say something that sounds like this. Unless you belong to our group or you attend our church or worship exactly like us, you cannot be saved. If you ever hear that, run away. Turn it off. If you hear anyone say, unless you participate in our ceremonies and you keep our rules, you cannot be saved. That is someone you should not listen to because what they are doing is they are taking the gospel and they are adding things to it to equal this different kind of formula for salvation. Paul wrote extensively about this. He tried to be very clear when he was teaching the churches. What does it mean to be saved and how is someone saved? And he writes extensively about it. Probably the clearest verse that he ever wrote is Ephesians chapter 2.8. It's a very famous verse in the Bible. It simply says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the, what, gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Paul is consistent everywhere he writes in Scripture that our salvation is completely linked to God's grace towards us. That we have faith, that is, we believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose to life, And we believe that because of his death on the cross, we have been set free from every sin. So we believe in Jesus and we've been set free from every sin. That's the good news. So Paul is just reiterating that different way. It's by God's grace you've been saved through faith. It's not that plus these other things. It's not that plus keeping rules. It's not that plus getting circumcised. It's not that plus anything. It's God's grace. And these are the the issues that are at play in Acts chapter 15, and that leads to a big old meeting in Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. they got to get this figured out. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so now it's grown, hasn't it? The question to Antioch is, do they have to be circumcised to be saved? Now the question is, do they have to be circumcised and they have to obey all the rules? Now, my understanding of the law of Moses is that if you counted them, there are 613 laws or rules or requirement that a Jewish person had to fulfill. And so what they're suggesting is, if you want to be a Christian, all you Gentile people who didn't grow up like us Jews, if you want to be a part of our church and be a Christian, you have to believe in Jesus, you have to become like a Jewish person, you have to have a surgery, and you have to obey 613 laws. Do you hear the legalism in there? I mean, let's be honest. The second you say to a group of Gentile men, come on forward and receive Christ and get your surgery, that's no altar call any man's going to respond to. Are you kidding me? But do you hear their legalism? Do you hear it through and through? And this is contrary to the simple good news message of Jesus. So look at verse 6. Here's what happens next. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. What is he referring to? He's referring to Acts chapter 10 when he was on his roof and he saw the sheet come down and God said, don't call anything um, unclean that I've called clean. Now go. I want you to go talk to Cornelius. And Cornelius was the first non-Jewish person to receive the Holy Spirit. This is what he's referring to. He goes, hey, I've got some experience with this very subject. Verse eight, God who knows the heart Don't you love it? He's like the first, like, hey, you know what? Everybody just calm down. Let me say something here. Peter, Peter is usually the first one to speak up. He's also the guy that drew a sword and chopped off another man's ear because he was trying to protect Jesus. This is his personality. So he's like, I've got something to say. And I like what he says. He says, you guys are going to heap a bunch of rules on them that, hey, if history tells us anything, we haven't even been able to obey those things. So why would we expect them to do it? In verse 11, he sums it up and he just says, listen, isn't it through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved? That, that's it, right? It's by the grace of God. That's why we're saved. And This truth, friends, as a church family, we have to have this ingrained and locked in to our doctrine. It is by the Lord's grace that we are saved. Nothing else. The Lord's grace. If you're taking notes today this might be a really good thing to write down and remember it's because of Jesus God accepts us by grace because of Jesus God accepts us by grace and what that means is that we cannot earn our salvation we cannot buy it we cannot do anything for it it is a true gift through God's grace you know, when I talk to people about the Lord, um, I will sometimes hear people say to me things that sound like this. Well, I'm not, I'm not yet quite good enough for where I need to be to follow Jesus just yet. I don't know enough Bible yet. I can't say all the books of the Bible in order yet. And um, when I get some more scripture memorized, there's some things in my life i got to take care of. You hear these kinds of things like... I'm not quite good enough, and as soon as I check these boxes, and then I'll be ready to follow Jesus. Friends, if you struggle with that kind of thinking today, I just want to be very upfront and honest with you that you will never feel good enough to be a Christian. You will never feel clean enough to follow Jesus. You can never do enough. You can never check enough boxes to To earn more of God's favor. Salvation just does not work that way. I remind you of this often. I'll remind you of it again. That Christianity stands alone as the only world religion where you are saved. Not by what you do for God. But by what God has already done for you. Compare Christianity to every other world religion. You're going to see that's what sets us apart. That our salvation is not based on good works and things we do to earn it. No, no, no. Our salvation is based on the fact that God has already done the good work for us through his son Jesus. By stepping out of heaven and walking among his His creation and becoming the once and all sacrifice on the cross, he did it all for us. You can't earn it. You can't replicate it. It's a gift from God. Many of you know that before I moved to Bella Vista, I was a pastor in Kansas City, Missouri, for ten years, and there was a lady in our congregation who approached me one Sunday after church, and she really surprised me when she says, um, "Hey," when she said to me, "Hey, Joe, I would like for you to baptize me again." Now, it kind of shocked me that she asked me that because two years earlier. Um, I had been a part of a group that helped disciple her and she became a Christian and I had the privilege of baptizing her and I I said, you're going to have to fill me in on some details. Why do you want to get baptized again? And she said, well, you know, when I got baptized two years ago, my life didn't immediately change. She said, there were still some things that I was struggling with that I continue to struggle with, and it's taken some time. But about two years later here, I I don't feel like I struggle with those same things anymore. I feel like I'm I'm more connected to God. I just just feel like I've, maybe I just got baptized two years too early. And now I'm ready. And as she tried to explain why she thought the timing was wrong before, I realized she had slipped into some of this thinking that you have to be good enough and you have to reach a certain level of devotion in order to earn God's favor that is connected to your salvation. And I, I tried to lovingly tell her, I said, that, that's, that's not really how God works. God never said, go out and fix every detail of your, your life. You come to me squeaky clean and then we're squeaky clean, then you can follow me. You know, there's plenty of language in the Bible that says, you know, go and sin no more. But it doesn't say, come to me squeaky clean. Getting saved is God cleaning you up. And over these past two years, I tried to tell her that you have been growing and under God's grace your baptism was the starting point it wasn't the finish line and you should feel closer to God than you did two years ago why because the Holy Spirit is alive and well in you you don't need to be rebaptized. I think you need to celebrate the fact that God is alive and well in your heart and that he's working in you he's not giving up on you and you are growing just like the rest of us because of Jesus God accepts us by grace, not because of our perceived perfection. If you're still taking notes, I think this would be another good thing to write down. We should accept one another by grace as well. Because God accepted each of us by grace, I think we should extend grace to one another. If we really accepted one another with the same amount of grace that God accepts us, what do you think would happen in our lives, in our church? Would it change the company we keep? Would it change the people that we want to invite to church? Oh, I believe it would. It's it's a mentality that transitions when we accept people by grace. It says that I'm not any better than you, and you don't have to do more than me to be saved. Together, we are saved under God's grace. So after Peter got done talking about grace, then James speaks up. James is the brother of... Of Jesus, who by Acts chapter 15 has become a leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. Now, look what James says in verse 13. It's his turn to talk. So, when, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, who is also, you know, Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to, to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. Now, jump down to verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Isn't verse 19 just going to have to be one of your favorite verses in the Bible? James goes, all right, I heard everything. Here's my conclusion. Let's not make it difficult for Gentiles who are trying to turn to God. Let's accept them by grace. And I, I think a lot about James's conclusion, and I turn this question on myself, and I'm going to turn this question on you this morning. Have we ever been guilty of making it difficult for somebody to come to God? Have we ever been guilty of it? You know, we we acknowledge we're saved by the Lord's grace, but have we ever intentionally or most likely unintentionally added our own requirement. so like for the jewish legalist it was you got to be circumcised to be saved too maybe that's not our requirement maybe it's something else you want to follow jesus well as long as you do a b c and d you can have we ever been guilty of that let me give you some examples have you ever thought we are saved by god's grace through jesus christ and you better start looking like a christian You better start dressing like one, whatever that looks like. You better uh, not wear that kind of... You you better start looking like a Christian. And we have unintentionally put a requirement onto the simple message of the good news. Or have you ever thought, I'm saved by God's grace, but you got to start talking like a Christian. And you better not let any of those words slip into your conversation. Have you ever maybe added a requirement like that to somebody? Well... You heard what comes out of their mouth sometimes? They must really not be that saved. You are saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ as long as you sing our kind of music. And you better not have that radio station tuned into your car radio. And you better not hum along to that tune. Because Christian people, they don't, they don't do that. So it's the simple message of the good news plus whatever added requirements we add to it in our mind well that makes you a saved good person and we have unintentionally added our own requirements to the simple message of the good news of jesus you're saved by grace through jesus christ and you better be reading your bible three hours a day and you better be on your knees for an hour in prayer And you better witness to 10 people a week. And you know what? If you miss church on any Sunday, you better be listening to the live stream before you go to bed that night, or you can't be saved. Now, we would never say it like that, but legalism is always trying to creep its way into our lives, and we have to be on guard. So James said this, hey... Let's let's re ring this bell a little bit and let's get focused on something. And I'm gonna say this let's not make it difficult for these Gentiles trying to turn to God. And then he says this in verse 20 here's what we should do instead. Instead, we should write to them. And what he means by write to all the Christians in these new areas that are coming to faith, these new Gentiles. And let's tell them this abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality. From the meat of strangled animals and from blood. This just got weird. I'll explain. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. What you are reading here in Acts 15 is the church coming together for common sense compromise without sacrificing the sacred truths of God. This is what you're, you're being privy to here. This is what you're reading. So they concluded, let's not make it difficult for Gentiles to, to come to find the Lord. And by making it difficult, they mean by requiring them to be like a Jewish person and to eat a special diet to learn to honor all the Jewish customs and traditions, and to also have a surgery. They're like, that is unnecessary, that is unrealistic, and it has nothing to do with salvation at all. So let's talk about these four things that are going to unify the church. And that's what it comes down to. And they're like, if we can all agree on these four things, it should go a long way for these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians to come together as one unified church. So let's write a letter and let's explain how we feel. Now, that letter, we actually, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he includes a transcript of this letter that got sent out to all these churches that these Gentiles belong to with these instructions. And it's not going to be on the screen, so you'll have to look at your Bibles. But um, it sent the letter, verse 23, and it says in verse 24, or 23, excuse me, that the apostles and the elders, your brothers, this letter is to all the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. In other words, this kind of shows you how far the church has grown. In verse 24, they, they have a little personal note with this letter. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. And I love the way they start this letter because they're acknowledging the fact that these guys that are stirring up confusion and disunity, they're not from us, they don't speak from us, and what we're going to write to you, this is what the Lord wants. And we're sorry that that happened, but here's the truth, and this is to set the record straight because those guys probably won't be the last ones to do this. And so they said, so we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you. Now, this is important detail. We chose the men to come and talk to you now. Not these guys that you don't know. No, we're choosing the right guys to come talk to you. And they're going to come with, with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, so in other words, they sought the Lord's guidance on this. They didn't just make it up. So we, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the, four, the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Short and sweet. Let me break down... These four things, because in these four things, what you see in this letter is two of them are being asked for obedience to to two commands and a willingness to agree to two personal concessions. When you break it down, that's what this is about. There's two commands and two concessions. The two commands in this letter were that believers were to avoid idolatry And sexual immorality. Now, these were both sins that were very prevalent in Jewish culture. All the places that they were trying to win people to Jesus, idolatry and sexual immorality rampant. These two commands in this letter did not uh, create any special problems, and here's why. Because idolatry and sexual immorality have always been wrong in God's sights, and and that is for both Jews and Gentiles. This was not a new command. This is something the church had already been taught and and were following. And uh, it's just basically acknowledgement. God has always felt the same way about idolatry and sexual immorality. So, here on out, across the board... Gentiles and Jewish people who are coming to faith, you're always going to put God first. You're never going to bow down to anything other than God. If you put anything first in your life that's not God, that is idolatry. And that's still the same way we talk about it today, isn't it? And then then they write, Christians are going to be a people that are going to be righteous when it comes to, to sexual things. That we are not going to be a part of sexual immorality. We are going to be sexually pure people. And that means specifically, and this has been the same from Genesis through Revelation from then till today. And it will be the same until the Lord comes back. That intimacy is specifically reserved for a husband who is a male and a wife who is a female. We have to qualify these things today. To enjoy that level of intimacy only after they have been married and not before. And this is what's going to separate Christian people from the way the world behaves. So these two commands are reiterated in this letter. And then there are two concessions uh, that they're asking, basically saying, you Gentiles who are the recipients of this letter... We're asking you to make two concessions, and the two concessions are these, to abstain from eating blood, and what that means specifically is is meat that still has the blood in it, you know? Um, Some of you guys like a really rare steak, and uh, it's all kind of ooey and gooey. That kind of is like, eh. I was in a hibachi grill one time, and we're sitting around with eight people I didn't know. You know, the ones like, you know those restaurants? Okay, you obviously don't know, so I'm going to just keep going. (laughs) No, you know what I'm talking about, right? So there's some dude at the end of the row, and the guy comes down, he goes, how do you want your steak? How do you want your chicken? And whatever, and he's like, and the guy then goes, don't cook it, just put it on my plate. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. He goes, I want it bloody and red. And I'm like, "Hmm." they cooked it because I was going to get up and leave because I couldn't handle it. Um, That has nothing to do with any of this. This, this, um, (laughs) all I mean is, Sometimes meat has blood in it, and they're saying, don't do that. And then the other concession was um, eating meat from animals that had died by strangulation. So what the, the, the apostles are, are asking the Gentiles is to make some concessions for the sake of harmony in the church. Let's aim for a, 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 a avoiding certain kinds of food for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you've got to keep in mind that in the early church... Um, This is two decades into the church. Jews and Gentiles are starting to mix a little bit more um, in the church. and, And where did, when I say church and I talk about worship, where did the majority of worship happen in the early church? It happened where? In people's living rooms. There were no buildings like this back then. No, hospitality and, and, and helping one another. This is still vital pieces of this early church. And, and, and they would gather together for worship weekly. And what did they do when they gathered together? They would eat. And the Lord's Supper, where they remembered the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that was actually one of the courses of the meal where they ate bread and wine, and they specifically paused to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. So their gatherings for worship felt more like your life group that brought a potluck dinner in to celebrate. That's what church felt like. You think food is a new phenomenon for Christians? No, 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 no. Christians have been eating food and worshiping at the same time for 2,000 years. This is not new. So now just think, you've got Jews and Gentiles coming together to share this kind of worship and fellowship and, Jew, and, and gentile people they ate whatever they wanted they weren't they weren't bound by these rules but can you imagine a jewish brother or sister in christ coming around the same table and they see food that they have been taught their whole life to not have anything to do with there is some disunity that could come from that and so for like jewish people you can read about the prohibitions of what they can eat. You read about it as early as Genesis chapter 9. There's a reference to not eating uh, food that has the lifeblood in it. There's specific rules in Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 12. And and, you know, I I tend to sympathize with the Jews of the early church. You just can't turn that switch off. You know, you're raised a certain way. It's hard to turn the switch off. So like when you guys come together to eat man, pay really close attention to the kind of food you're eating together and don't let that cause disunity. And so the other requirement was don't eat food that came from, from animals that were killed by strangulation. And when you strangle well, back then when you butcher an animal and you strangle it, that kind of preserves the blood in the meat. If you ever go to the grocery store and, and have you ever been to a grocery store where they have a kosher section or they have uh, foods that are listed as kosher, kosher meat just means that it's meat that comes from a clean animal that has been killed properly so that the blood has been completely drained so that a Jewish person would not defile themselves by eating it. That's what that means. And so they're saying the goal here is that these legalistic Jews would be willing to give up this thinking that that Gentiles need to be circumcised and obey all these rules and and that the Gentiles would be willing to make some concessions about the food that they ate when they came together for worship. It was really an attempt at a loving compromise that did not in any way affect the sacred truth of God. And you know, I believe that God still wants His church to behave this way. I believe that the Lord fully expects us to live at peace with one another as best as we know how to do. And I believe that he wants us as Christians to always look for ways that we can get along with one another and that we can find these compromises and and concessions that do not affect the sacred truths of God's Word. In that context, I think a lot about what's going on in the church in America and a lot of compromises and concessions that are being made that are not good I think about our church family a lot. I don't know if you know this, but there's about 900 people or so that call New Life their home church, that this is their family. And people who come from all different walks of life. I mean, right here in our church, every single person has a unique story that is completely different than anyone else's story of of how they grew up and their faith and and, and how they came to know Jesus. You've got people in our church family who grew up in the strictest of religious homes. Anybody in here grew up in a very strict religious home? And then you also have people in our church family that uh, New Life Christian Church is the only church they have ever known. You've got people in our church here that have a freedom in Christ that allows them to partake in certain activities that other people in our church would never do for themselves because that would be a sin. There's different views of what freedom in Christ allows us to do in many people's minds. You've got all different kinds of ideas about that right here in our church family. I can't back this up with data because I just don't have it. All I've got is observations and feelings. But I believe that New Life Christian Church is made up of people who come from a vast religious denominational background. So you've got people that make up these 900 plus people. Many of them come from Christian churches. Others have background in the Catholic church. You've got Baptist, Pentecostal. Presbyterian, Lutherans, Methodists, you've got non-denominational, you've got Nazarene, you've got Church of Christ, you've got disciples of Christ. Who am I missing? The list is long. Our church family is made up of people who bring all of that with them into this place. You've got people that come from large churches and you've got people who've experienced nothing but small churches you've got city churches and country churches you've got family churches and house churches and churches from other countries and experienced all kinds of worship in different places in our church family you have got people who come from conservative churches and very liberal churches and social action churches and churches that would be traditional churches and others that would call themselves contemporary churches or modern churches You've got people who have grown up in, a, in our churches that have a very Sunday school model kind of church and others that come from, no, it's a small groups model church and on and on and on and on and how in the world do we find unity among such Christian diversity? How do you do that? I think a good place to start is to always remember that because of Jesus, God accepts us by grace. And I think we also should remember that because of Jesus, we should accept one another by that same grace. That is a good place to start. Can I pray for you? To gracious God, I just give you thanks today that you have allowed us to have a small glimpse, a little bit of insights, and some backstory of when the church struggled to come together. Different ideas, different agendas, strong opinions all converged, and it threatened to disrupt the good work you were doing in the church. I thank you, Lord, that we have this chapter of the Bible that shows us how they did it. Lord, I pray for our church family. There is a lot of Christian diversity in our church. Lord, I pray that your grace always hangs over our church family. And that, Lord, we would always be conscientious of the truth that we are in this together. That we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That, Lord, in our diversity, we can find compromise and concessions without ever compromising the t- sacred truths of you. Lord, we ask for your help in this. We thank you, Lord, for the victories we've already seen. Together, Lord, may we move together in one unified group to reach Bella Vista with the good news of Jesus Christ, the simple message that all who believe can be set free from every sin. God, Help us in that endeavor, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.